Well, thank you, Zach and Becca and Sarah, for another glorious uh, time of praise. Uh, let's pray. <laughs> Father, it's good to be with the saints, and we long for the day when they can all assemble, when none are sick, none have to remain safely secluded, none are fearful, but we can finally be with the family gathered to enjoy the fellowship that is in anticipation of the new earth to come, when we will live on our new earth and new bodies and see our God face to face, when there will be no darkness nor need of any sun, for Christ will be the light in that day. Until then, we thank you for the light shining through the stained glass. We thank you for the beautiful morn. We thank you for the brisk air, for the blue skies. We thank you for this time that we have to lift our minds and our eyes to things above, to not worry about what's on the newspapers, what's on the internet, but to mind things eternal. And the truth that we celebrate this season and we long to anticipate its arrival someday. Help us to understand this text, this teaching, and guard us and keep us as we leave, we ask, and be with our family who is apart from us right now, be with them and in a special way we pray. Amen. Well, I came to Christ in college and immediately got involved in Campus Crusade for Christ. And of the many activities they did, one of my favorite was called FANOP, which stood for Friday Night of Prayer. And we would gather at a location and pray and sing. And that was really the inspiration for our last Thursday of each month when we gather and pray and sing. And one time they said, this week's FANOP is going to be at Ashton. And I didn't know what that was. And Ashton was the name of a house off campus where a number of crusade men had rented. And I had never heard the name, asked about it. And they said, well, have you never read this present darkness? And I hadn't. It had just been released. But I immediately went out and bought it because that's what I do when people give me a book title. And read it, I think, in a sitting and was compelled by my first exposure to the concept of spiritual warfare. Now, over 15 million copies of this book have sold, so likely some of y'all have read it or heard about it. But it presents this imaginary town of Ashton that is under siege by demonic forces and defended by angelic powers. And for the first time, I began to realize that God's children are fighting on two fronts. That the campaign of God's expanding kingdom is in two theaters. And that there is a spiritual dimension to this cosmic warfare that we are engaged in. And the work is fiction and filled with all kinds of theological flaws one could pick apart. But the basic concept of spiritual warfare and a God who is in, uh, expanding his domain into enemy territory, while Satan and his dominions oppose it and seek to afflict us, is very much real. And it's a theme running through Scripture from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20. It is pervasive. It is enduring. And the angels and the demons aren't just spectators looking from the basement or the balconies. They are very much prominent players in God's redemptive plan. And we see that very clearly in Daniel chapter 10, which is our text this morning. So I invite you to open to the book of Daniel chapter 10. You'll remember that Daniel has two parts, six chapters of court tales recounting episodes from Babylon, and the second six chapters recounting four visions of Daniel. There was the vision of 
the four beasts arising out of the ocean, and then one like a son of man approaching the highest. And then we had the vision of the ram and the goats, or the ram and the goat representing Persia and Greece. And then last week we saw the 70th days following Daniel's extended prayer. And now in 10 through 12 is the final vision, the fourth and final vision of Daniel. But the vision itself begins in 10, but it's really a preparation for the message that's conveyed in 11 and 12. And so as we look ahead, we're going to see a preparation for the vision in chapter 10, the revelation of the vision in chapter 11, and then an epilogue to the vision at the conclusion of chapter 12. Daniel 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel. Now this is 586 B.C., three years after chapter 9, about 500 years before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Cyrus has given his decree, allowing Israel to return to the Holy Land, and now they are several years into that venture. That'll be important a little bit later. This message was given to Daniel, also known as Belshazzar. It was true, reliable, actionable intel, and one of great conflict. That is this vision of the latter days. It's a Hebrew phrase used several times to refer to the far future. And specifically to the time that Messiah comes and reigns, what anticipates that event. It's not one of increasing peace and harmony as we become increasingly civilized. There's not this glimpse of a glowing future, of a utopian future, but rather one of enduring conflict on earth and in the heavens that's going to worsen and intensify until it comes to its conclusion. And in those days, I, and now we slip into the first person because Daniel's recounting this, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I didn't eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. And so we're struck by first the extensive nature of this fast. Three weeks is a long time. 21 days, a set period. And it was an intensive fast. Tasty food, uh, meat, wine, nor ointment that they would have used in the ancient Near East for fragrance, fragrance for refreshing as well as sun protection. And also the timing of this, because we're going to be told in verse 4 that this occurred in the month of Nisan, which was the first month of the Hebrew calendar, so Passover would have been occurring during this time. So something has Daniel mourning during a time of celebration when Israel would have been commemorating its exodus redemption from Egypt. And during a time of thanksgiving, he's not feasting but fasting. During a time of exaltation, he's mourning. During the 4th of July, he's in mourning, in grief over something. Why? What likely, as we look at a contemporary event in the book of Ezra, is if you know your Bible... Cyrus allowed Israel to return, and under Zerubbabel, they went back and they laid the foundation and they began to establish the altar, and then the enemies of God rose up and opposed the rebuilding project. Here's what Ezra 4 says. The people of the land, earlier referred to as the enemies of God's people, discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. And they hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they had tried to deceive them, saying, let us help. But they spotted out the trap and said, no, you're not of God. 
Then they began trying to discourage them, to daunt them. Then they hired lobbyists to get an injunction levied against them, and it worked. And for 16 years, the Reconstruction Project was placed on hold. So here's Daniel, who was taken captive as a young man of around 15 years old, who had spent 70 years in captivity. And then you remember that the day had come when the 70th Sabbaths had been atoned for, and they were allowed to go back into the land, and he could expect possibly a return. And then the word begins to trickle back. It stopped. <laughs> after seven decades of waiting, after an exciting resumption, God's enemies had prevailed, apparently. And for 16 years, more than Daniel's lifetime, God's work is going to be stopped. And sometimes that happens because God's work is always opposed. And there are always enemies trying to intervene in God's good works. And sometimes they seem to temporarily prevail. And this is an important lesson for Christians to learn of patient, persistent prayerfulness because whenever we're doing a work of God, the enemy is going to be aroused to intervene and intercede, and there will be setbacks. Uh, there's a beautiful book by Elizabeth Elliot called These Strange Ashes, and it tells about her first years in the mission field in Ecuador, along with her husband, Jim, that wasn't her husband as of yet. And she tells the story of this very arduous translation project to put the Bible or the New Testament in the language of a tribal people that didn't have any access to God's word. And there were all these difficulties. They finally found someone who could speak the tribal language and Spanish who could help them get the work going. And then he was killed in a bar fight. But they persisted, they persevered, they were able to get the translation. And with great pride and joy, they put it on a donkey to go up to Quito to have it published. And the donkey slipped off a cliff in a mudslide and the entire project was permanently eradicated. Nearly simultaneously, her husband Jim had been working, not her husband then, her fiance, her friend, was in a different part of Ecuador. They had been clearing out the jungle to build a village so that the people could come and gather and experience some safety and they could teach the children, teach God's word, and they built it, and a flood came and eradicated it. And Elizabeth Elliot said, why? Why did we build this sacrifice and you burn it all up? Why these strange ashes? And in God's providence, he sometimes allows those things to happen. In her perspective, it was to develop her as a missionary, to develop Jim as a saint, and to prepare them for the work that God had for them. But this will happen to us, and it happened to Daniel. And so what did he do? Well, Daniel did what he always does. He prayed. And so on the 24th month of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, he had been praying with fasting for this period. And he lifts his eyes and looks, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, the garment of a Hebrew priest, but whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. Now we don't know where Uphaz was, but it was famous at the time for the quality of its gold. Meanwhile, his body was like beryl, or your Bibles may say jasper or topaz. We don't know the exact semi-precious stone being referred to here. His face had the appearance of lightning. You couldn't view at it because of its brightness. His eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult, a singular person speaking with the voice of a multitude. 
And those of us who have benefited from getting the rest of our Bibles should be able to recognize this description. I see some nodding heads because John was given this similar picture in the book of Revelation. It says, in the middle of the lampstands representing the seven churches, I saw one like a son of man. Remember that phrase from Daniel 7? Clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like flame. His feet like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Who Daniel saw on the bank was none other than the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of Man. So he had seen this earlier vision in chapter 2 or interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the stone that struck the statue and then became the kingdom. And then he saw one like the Son of Man approaching the Holy of Holies, the Ancient of Days. And now that figure is on earth standing across the bank from him. And Daniel's response, the men who were with him saw the vision. Uh, they didn't see the vision, but they felt a great dread fell on them and they ran away to hide themselves. And he was left alone seeing this great vision. It's the only time in the Bible that a vision is called great. And it saps him of his strength. His pallor pales and he retained no strength. He heard the sound of the words and as soon as he heard the sound, he fell into a deep sleep on his face with a face to the ground. He falls face down on the ground, losing consciousness. He's overwhelmed by the experience. And then in verse 10, he's literally touched by an angel. I think it's the only time an angel actually touches someone in scripture. Behold, a hand touched me. And this is so vivid. He set him trembling on his hands and knees. Now, Daniel's about 85 years old now. He's had this overwhelming experience. He fell face down on the ground and an angelic hand begins to raise him up and he's shaking and he's trembling and he's on his hands and knees. And he said, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright for I've been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. The angel said, stand. He struggles to stand, but he's trembling with emotion still. And the angel said, do not be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this, possibly the revelation that he had had before, more likely why God would allow this halting of his reconstruction project, and humbling yourself before your God is 21 day fasting with prayer, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. Do you remember in chapter 9 that he says that the moment you began praying, the order was issued for me to come? And the moment Daniel begins to humble himself, the angel was going to come. So why did he not arrive for three weeks? Well, he tells him, the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Now that's an odd sentence. Uh, I, I confess when I read this, if any Tolkien lovers here, I thought of Gandalf. They said, why, were you, why didn't you come? And he says, I was delayed. <laughs> that he was captured by Saruman. Well, same thing. Something delayed an angel, and it surely wasn't Cyrus. It wasn't an earthly prince. 
Because the word prince means ruler and it applies not simply to earthly rulers, but also to demonic principalities. And something, as this angel began winging his way to Daniel, this ruler, this demonic power associated with Persia, probably not the territory, but the political uh, entity, so less a territorial spirit than what commentators call an empire spirit. It wasn't as though that once you left Persia, his authority ended, but one that had been assigned to intervene in God's work in Persia. And he delayed them for 21 days until finally Michael, an archangel, one of the chief princes of the angels, one of the powers, came to help me, for he had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now, this is a very interesting insight into things that are going on that while Daniel is concerned about the earthly opposition to God's work, he finds out that there is an angelic opposition, a demonic opposition to what God is trying to do overall. And that this angel was standing toe to toe with this demon, delayed, not able to move further until Michael, the archangel, comes and intervenes and assists. Now, Michael is revealed by name twice more in scripture in the book of Revelation or once in Revelation, once in Jude. There was war in heaven, Revelation 12 tells us, and Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So here we see, first of all, the respect that Michael gives Satan. He didn't oppose him in his own power, but in the Lord's power, but also the power of Michael to oppose Satan and to cast him down. Uh, by the way, when we were choosing a name for our son, we wanted a good, strong biblical name we went to Michael, which in Hebrew means who is like our God or no one is like our God. And so Michael, the archangel, and he's referred to later in this chapter as your prince in verse 21. There's no one who stands firmly with me against these demonic forces except Michael, your prince, and the your is plural in the Hebrew. So apparently Michael has been appointed as the protector of Israel. We see something similar in chapter 12. Now at this time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found in the book, will be rescued. So here again, we get this reference to an archangel, the prince of the angels, who is Israel's protector because Israel is being opposed and afflicted by demonic forces that also apparently are assigned to these different political entities. And the angel goes on in verse 14. And I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision that he's going to give in 11 and 12 pertains to the days yet future. And when the angel had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips and I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O oh my Lord, as a result of the vision, 
anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with me as such, with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. And then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me, and said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. And as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May the Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. He's going to rejoin the fray, having delivered his message. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. The angel reveals a spiritual dimension to the warfare that he is concerned about on earth. That there are demonic powers associated with these political entities and moving to them to harm God's people. And you wonder, 50 years in advance, in the book of Esther, you remember how Haman tried to arrange a genocide of God's people? And then Mordecai and Esther were moved to prayerfully intervene? And is the backstory to that the demons moving Haman to hate Mordecai and the Jews, and the angels moving Mordecai and Esther to pray and to have courage to intervene? We're not sure, but something like that is going on apparently all the time. And this has been going on since the beginning of time, since Satan fell and brought his demons with him, and they, he led Adam and Eve to disobey God and put us in this pickle that we've been living in ever since. So what we want to do is step back from Daniel 10 and look at 10 biblical truths about angels, demons, and spiritual warfare, because this is a neglected aspect of Scripture for some, an overemphasized aspect of Scripture for others, and much misunderstood but necessary for all. And so let's look at 10 things that the Bible says about angels and demons and spiritual warfare. First of all, angels and demons and spiritual warfare are really real. This isn't imaginative. This isn't simply certain fringe movements of Christians believe this. The Bible says this, teaches this, and it is true. So in 2013, New York Magazine interviewed Antonin Scalia, who was then the most prominent conservative on the Supreme Court. And as Scalia, the justice, is interviewing he mentions that he believes in Satan as an entity, as a real person. And it shocks the journalist and says, isn't that frightening to actually think that you believe in Satan? And this is Scalia's response. You're looking at me as though I'm weird. Are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels. You in New York travel in circles that are so removed from mainstream America that you're appalled that anybody would believe in the devil. Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you and I have believed in the devil. And so here, Antonin Scalia, with all of his education and his political prominence, said, of course I believe in the devil. Most humans do. Most humans always have. Brighter people than you and I have, but for us we know that the Bible teaches it and so it's true, it's real. Secondly, 
The Bible teaches that God created myriads of angels before he created the earth. The book of Nehemiah says, You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of the heavens, with all their hosts. Which in this context we know is not referring to the stars because it goes on to say, You created the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bows down to you. God made the angels. The book of Colossians says he did so through Jesus Christ. Because by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Christ and for Christ. Job gives us some indication of the timing of this. God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, sons of God and morning stars are biblical terms for angels. They were there, they watched God form the earth, and they celebrated they exulted in it. And the references that we have to angels as far as their number are myriads, or sometimes myriads of myriads. Now a myriad is 10,000, but it was the largest numeral in the ancient Near East. They didn't have a higher number than that. They didn't have billions and trillions and whatever goes beyond that. They had myriads. Myriads of myriads, 10,000, 10,000, 100 million angels but of course, he's just trying to say innumerable. There are innumerable spiritual beings that God created. Thirdly, these angels or their demonic counterparts are immaterial, personal, powerful beings. The book of Hebrews says, Are angels not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation? And Jesus tells the apostles after his resurrection, I'm not a spirit because I have flesh and blood and spirits don't have flesh and blood. And the book of 2 Kings says that when the Assyrian army under Sennacherib besieged Jerusalem and all looked lost, but yet God sent an angel, a singular angel, and 185,000 were slain in the night. Uh, if there's any poetry lovers in here, any English majors, Lord Byron has a poem called The Destruction of Sennacherib that I recommend you go and read, and it uh, is a poetic rendition of this account. So they are personal, they have intelligence, they have emotion, they have will, they're powerful, but they're immaterial. Fourthly, many of these angels rebelled against God and became demons. A demon is a fallen angel. A common name for them in Scripture is an unclean spirit as opposed to a holy angel. Genesis says that in the beginning, at the end of the sixth day of creation, everything was very good. So the fall happened sometime after that, the fall of the angels. Revelation 12, we've already revealed, of my, or already read, of Michael the archangel in spiritual battle and Satan being cast down. Second Peter and Jude also allude to this event. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. 
Satan sought to be an equal with God or did not choose to submit himself freely to God and convinced a number of other angels to follow in him in a rebellion. And this is the origin of demons. And the demons are ruled by a fallen angel whose personal name is Satan, a Hebrew word meaning adversary. So Job tells us that there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came among them. Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to commit a sinful census that resulted in a plague, a, God, a judgment of God. The book of Zechariah says that he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse them. When the devil tempted Jesus after his baptism, he just simply said, be gone, Satan, an individual being the ruler of the demons. Other names are the devil, Beelzebul, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the evil one, or the serpent. In fact, there was just a recent book on biblical theology re, uh, released about the imagery of serpents in the Bible. And the way he summarizes the Bible is, slay the serpent to save the girl. And that's what the Bible's about, is to save the bride of God, to save the bride of Christ, the serpent had to be slain, which is what Jesus came to do. Satan and the demons oppose God's work and God's people. Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. And what were those desires? They were murderous. They were deceptive. Second uh, Corinthians says that the God of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they can't understand the gospel. Do you remember Jesus in the parable of the sower and the seed? The sower went out and cast the seed and some fell in the hard place and the birds came and ate it up before it could take root. And do you remember what the bird represented? Satan. That there are times that the gospel is shared and there is a demonic intervention that keeps the person from understanding and receiving it. Paul said that I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That Satan tries to deceive God's saints or to daunt them or to defile them or to disqualify them or to divide them, to destroy them in some manner because that is what he intends to do. But yet Satan is subject to God and has been defeated by Jesus Christ. God allowed Satan to test Job, but it was only by God's permission and only within God's limits. Jesus would later say to Peter, Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat, but he had to receive that permission. And he didn't destroy Peter, Jesus restored him. Jesus says when he came to earth that he was binding the strong man, the devil, in order to plunder his house, that is those that he would redeem. Now judgment is cast upon this world and the ruler of this world will be cast out, Jesus said in anticipation of his crucifixion. And now having been crucified, Paul says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And why did the Son of God come? At least part of that reason, according to John, is to destroy the works of the devil. 
including death, which Jesus conquered with his death and resurrection. Eighthly, Satan and his demons will be cast into the lake of fire forever someday. Now I want to read an extended section of Revelation 19 and 20 to move to the end of the story because the outcome is now not in debt. You know, part of the joy of a good tense scene is the outcome is in question. So at the battle of Helm's Deep or of Minas Tirith or in other times, it's, are the good guys going to prevail? But when we get to the end of the story, the Bible is tremendously anticlimactic because it's not a contest. You can't compare God and Satan. Satan's an angel. He is a created being. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not all-powerful. His counterpart is Michael or Gabriel. So what happens when Jesus returns? John saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. Sound familiar? And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, some think these are angels, and we know that Christ is the captain of the angelic host, possibly. In the book of Revelation, every time we see people clothed in white linen, they're the saints. And so others think that these are the saints riding on horseback with Christ. Uh, others, and I incline to this, is that it's both. That at one day, God's ground troops and air force, the earthly and angelic followers of God, are going to be part of the same movement following our Lord because linen is a terrible battle garment. Typically, if you're suiting up for battle, you don't wear white linen. That's not good on any level, unless you're there as a spectator, which is what we'll be. Look at what happens. From Christ's mouth comes a sharp sword so that he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron and tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King above all kings and Lord above and of all lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds, come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses of all the enemies of God. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So now this must have been an awesome visual. So here is Satan with all of his forces arrayed around him and they're stomping and they're champing and they're beating their, threats, their chest or whatever they do. And as the battle engages, it's over. And the beast was seized by Christ along with the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. And the two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's gruesome. It's terrible. It's instantaneous. When God's purpose for the allowing of evil in the world ends, 
it's over in an instant. Now we do know from the next chapter of Revelation that Satan is going to be bound and then released. And for the sake of time, I don't think I'm going to read all of Revelation 20 other than it tells us that Satan is bound for a thousand years and then briefly released and then he too is consigned to the lake of fire, which should give us great confidence. Uh, the most terrifying movie that I've ever seen, and I wish I hadn't seen it, was The Exorcist. And when I was in middle school, I somehow caught it on our TV, and to this day, I can remember the scene. So I'm not endorsing it, I'm not recommending it, but it was a compelling, frightening scene. And I know two people personally who came to Christ after watching that movie. One of them lives not far from here, and she said, I went into the movie theater as an atheist, but I left believing in the devil and looking for someone who could protect me from someone so powerful and horrible. And who is that person? It is Christ. And in him, we have confidence, however terrible and however many the devil and his minions are, which is why Martin Luther could sing, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And knowing that he can and will... And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. Be sobered, but not frightened. But on that sober note, until Satan's doom comes, Christians must resist his opposition. We have an enemy and he is inexorable and he is ruthless and he is tireless and he is crafty and he has undone much godlier people than you and I. He was able to tempt Eve than Adam. He was able to move David and Solomon into adultery and idolatry. So we need to be cautious. We need to beware. And so the Bible says in the book of Ephesians, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might by putting on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the worldly forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. How do we defend ourselves against spiritual beings? Well, here we're told specifically, God has given us armor for just this purpose. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. The first thing as we begin to gird ourselves for battle is to believe in the truth of God and to know the word of God so that we don't fall prey to the deception and the lies of the devil. When you read your Bible daily, you are girding your loins with truth. When you come to church on Sunday and we attend God's word, we are preparing ourselves to not be lied to, 
to see through deceptions, to see through falsehoods, because that's his primary weapon is deception. And so we must be constantly steeping ourselves in the truth. And then secondly, we put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now the breastplate guards our torso where the vital organs are. And righteousness is the holy, obedient life that God calls us to. Because when we begin to compromise, we expose ourselves to Satan's attack. What led David to fall? He allowed himself to grow lax and to commit adultery. Solomon didn't start out with idolatry. He started out with disobedience by taking or non-Jewish wives and beginning to indulge in things that God had prohibited him from doing that. And how many saints do we know who have fallen? How many people personally do we know that were doing great things for God and then due to an indulgence of sin in their life, they exposed a chink in the armor that Satan exploited. And so we defend ourselves against the devil when we obey God, when we pursue righteousness and we don't allow sin to abide in our life. Having shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, standing firm in the knowledge of the gospel and trusting not in ourselves and our merit, but God and his grace and all that he's done in Christ. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. That we have to strengthen our faith so that when we are tempted to doubt by trials, by suffering, by unexpected events in our life, we're able to prevail. And by the way, all of these commands are plural. We read them all individually, and there's an individual aspect to them. But Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He's speaking to the battalion who has to armor up together. And the way that the Roman soldiers would have fought with their shields is standing person to person so that my shield was protecting the person here, this person was protecting my flank, and we could stand together. But if we ever got fractured, if, we ever, if there was ever a fissure in the ranks, then we could be foiled, then we could be defeated. And so we have to help one another in this and to pray for one another in this and to encourage one another in this. Paul says, have mercy on those who are doubting and go and help them. And so when we begin to see people struggling and suffering and moving away from the things that they used to do, we need to go after them and pursue them and to help them. We're in this together. The helmet of salvation, the full knowledge of what the gospel is and that we've been saved and all that that entails and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We have to know how to use God's Word in the various situations that we're going to find ourselves day to day. And so we're every day reading God's Word. We're memorizing Scripture so that it's ready at hand to defend ourselves or others. And of course, constantly praying. Um, I like to, several times a week, as many times as it comes to mind, and it's at least weekly, when I get dressed in the morning, I think about putting on the armor of God. And so uh, when I get undressed to shower, I think about putting on the old man. And then I pray for purity and cleansing as I shower. I shampoo, thinking, uh, God, help my thoughts be pure. I brush my teeth. Let my speech be pure and edifying. Let me speak the word of God in truth and love. And then when I dress, I think about putting on truth and about putting on righteousness and about shodding myself with the gospel and about... And, and that's just a, a cue that I use to remind me there's an enemy that is after me today. 
So when Fred goes into the hospital or to the doctor's office, he never sees a patient without his PPE, without his personal protective equipment. Uh, we have some firefighters in our congregation and they never rush to a scene without being properly armored up. Hopefully none of us start driving without a seatbelt going on. I'm in a dangerous situation, I better take precautions. We're in a dangerous situation and we need to take precautions and this is what it's told for us to do. Some other scriptures. Christ told us to daily pray as often as we need our daily bread. God, do not lead me into temptation, but deliver me from evil or very probably the evil one. We're not told to resist temptation. We're told to flee it because we don't resist temptation. You know, Mark Twain said, I can resist everything but, but temptation. And that's true for all of us because we're sinners. We got flesh. The world's tempting. And so best to flee it to avoid it. Christ also said, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation because the spirit may be willing, but the flesh, this tough, it's weak, it's weak. And so we can't expose ourselves to everything on the internet and to every relationship and to every friendship and to every circumstance. We're too weak for that. We have to flee temptation and avoid it. Here's another very practical way we defend ourselves against the devil. You may be angry, but don't sin. And don't let the sun go down on your anger, because if you do, you'll give the devil an opportunity. Remember Cain was angry at his brother? And God warned him, <laughs> if you'll do right, won't your countenance be lefted? Cain ignored it, and it led to murder. And how many times does a moment of anger last to the next day, and then it begins to fester into resentment and bitterness and vengeance, and we seek the harm of others, and malice has entered into our soul. So one very practical way that we don't give in to the devil is by forgiving people every day, by reconciling with one another every day. Here's another one that Peter warns us of. And Peter was experienced on this front, having been sifted. He says, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Uh, John Owen, when talking about this, said, if you were a fighter in the ring and all of a sudden lowered your guard and quit fighting, how long would the match last? And so if your enemy is always prowling and always fighting and you quit resisting, how long is that match going to last? And it's a vivid image. Keep your guard up. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like roaring lions, seeking someone to devour, but you resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering, the persecution they were undergoing, are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. James says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It's very basic. It's very practical. And it's very essential. Put on the armor of God. Be alert. Be sober. Don't enter into temptation. Don't play with sin. Don't let anger fester into ugly things. Draw near to God. Resist the devil. And endure. Have hope. Because God's angels are going to assist us in this demonic opposition. The angel told Daniel, There is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your Israel's prince. Matthew said, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
For I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So Israel had an angel protecting it. Presumably these little ones had angels protecting them. Does every person have a personalized guardian angel? We don't know. Likely not, but we have angels guarding us. Uh, some of us probably need more than one. <laughs> Others can probably play zone. But whatever it is, we have angelic protection. And here's one of my favorite passages on this. Elisha was with his servant as the city was surrounded by the foes of God. And the servant came and said, Behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And he said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? We're surrounded. And Elisha answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There were reinforcements they knew not of if he just had eyes to see it. We don't always see the angels, but they're there. So one of my privileges is I get to have lunch every Thursday with Papa Mel and a few other dear saints. And so uh, as I was with these missionaries and pastors, and I just said, have you ever had a personal experience of angelic protection? or someone so close that you just, you 100% believed it and trusted it. And Papa Mel, I, I see Frank pointing at Mel. Uh, I'm gonna let you ask him sometime about the way that an angel guarded him from assassins in Baguio City in the Philippines. And I'm not gonna steal your thunder. Uh, Alan Chamberlain, whose grandfather was a missionary in Jamaica, tells of a time that the missionary was supposed to be killed by hired killers and failed on several accounts. And when the one who sent the killers said, why didn't you do what I sent you to do? He said, I couldn't because there was a man guarding there. And there was no man guarding it. And Alan says, my grandfather thought and I believe him that there was an angel protecting my grandfather. Uh, one of the missionaries that, I was, that was at the table with us gave an account of a missionary in a Muslim country that in order to stop him, they kidnapped his young daughter and they were going to harm her to silence him. And then as they were fretting and praying, how do we get our girl back? The girl showed up at the door and she said that an angel led her out of the building and led her back home. Now, I know this missionary very well. He knows this person very well. I believe that happened. And I think there's countless occasions where we don't even know the protection that occurred, but God was there protecting us. The Bible says that we believe it is true. And so be assured. You know, with Thanksgiving past, uh, it seems appropriate to start celebrating Christmas. And some years, many years, there's a particular song that just grabs my heart. So uh, as a young believer, I somehow had this affinity towards little drummer boy and the idea of, you know, shall I pray for him? And he smiled at me. And so I went and bought a cassette tape of Burl Ives that'll always be the voice of Christmas for me, uh, singing Little Drummer Boy, and I played it all season long. Uh, sometimes it's O Holy Night. But this year, for whatever reason, it's uh, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And I've listened to it countless times, and I'm still trying to find the right version because I haven't found one I really love as of yet. But this was a poem written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in 1863 in the midst of the Civil War. I'm going to read the words. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, 
and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon barrels, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And he had a son that enlisted against his will and was uh, injured in the war. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the household born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And that's the sad saga of humanity. Of hateful deeds done by hateful people. And of suffering and violence and malice. Disrupting the carol that God intended. And this is going to keep rolling through the centuries until. The peal of the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead. Nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so as we are harking herald angels, and as you are uh, seeing them on Christmas cards and Christmas trees and adorning buildings and churches, be mindful that these are co-combatants in the noble fight. These are angelic allies sent to be ministering spirits on our behalf. And that even though the hate is strong and mocks the song, that God has decreed that the day of evil will end and Christ will prevail and then the bells will peal eternally. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Be encouraged, stay in the fight, stay true, cling to Christ. He's coming back and the good guys win. Father, we thank you for revealing to us spiritual realities that we would not know had you not given us in your word but they are true. Would you make us mindful of them? And would you guard us from the evil one, keep us close into yourself, and keep us engaged in the good fight until our captain comes back, calls us to his side, and we return to reign with him forever and forever. Amen.